0: Hello, welcome to the hot seat. I'm Martin Rogers here with Professor Simon Hicks to discuss Scotland and its future. Welcome Simon. Hi. So first of all, what future is there for
1: Scotland? Well now that Scotland has voted no, the the big question for the Westminster parties is what exactly are they going to deliver after the pledges they made as part of the campaign. So in the last few weeks of the campaign, the leaders of the three parties all signed a pledge saying that they would... Uh, transfer significant powers to Scotland the Scottish Parliament already has certain powers but the powers they've promised are um, genuine independence of tax-raising powers and more authority over healthcare and education and other areas of public spending and also to they've made a pledge to maintain higher levels of public spending in Scotland than the rest of the country so what
0: now is the future for the rest of the UK as a whole in terms of the
1: devolution and matching the promises made to Scotland. Of course the promises to Scotland raises questions over what to do with the rest of the UK because we're going to have a situation where we have Scotland with all its own independent tax raising powers and autonomy over major areas of public expenditure. And then the House of Commons will essentially be governing the rest of the country with Scottish MPs sitting in the House of Commons. So the Conservatives were, one of the first things that happened after the referendum was David Cameron made a statement saying that he wanted in parallel to the plans for devolution to Scotland, he wanted a debate to begin about what to do, with Westminster and what to do with the rest of the Union. With Wales and Northern Ireland it's quite straightforward. You can transfer similar sorts of powers to Wales and Northern Ireland, perhaps not as extensive as to Scotland, but what do you do with England? And So the, the options on the table are the following. So the first option is to say well, we essentially have an English Parliament in the House of Commons, meaning We have English votes on English laws, so only English and Welsh MPs sitting in the House of Commons will be voting on English and Welsh education policy, for example, or English and Welsh health policy. Um, So this is attractive to the Conservative Party because a lot of the MPs in Scotland are from Labour, so they think that if they can remove the Scottish MPs from some key votes in the House of Commons, it's going to be very difficult in the future for Labour to, to form a government. It's a big challenge to Labour, of course, because they're saying, well, we don't want that. Well, what else is there? So this comes to... Option two. Option two would be actually to devolve powers within England to regional authorities and regional assemblies. Now, Labour tried that. Um, under the Blair government and the North of Eng- northeast of England had a vote on whether they wanted a regional assembly and they rejected it and since then this has sort of been off the table and the major criticism has been, well England doesn't have the same sort of regional identities in the way that Wales has its identity, Scotland has an identity, Northern Ireland does. I mean, London it's obvious, we have a mayor in London, we have an assembly in London, but southwest of England East Midlands, I mean it's not obvious that you have the same sort of identity and the public is very much opposed to another lot of MPs, another lot of politicians, another lot of bureaucrats, so I think it's much more difficult for Labour in the current situation than it is for the Conservatives to come up with a solution.
0: Is there a realistic prospect, given that, of a Labour government being elected the next election effectively being... Newton unable to carry out its manifesto commitments because of the inbuilt Conservative majority in England if certain MPs are excluded?
1: That's a real possibility because most of the forecasts right now are suggesting we're going to have another hung parliament. Labour might be the largest Uh, have the largest number of MPs in the Parliament and so they might say we want to form a government but they may be in a situation which will be very difficult for the governance of the UK if after the general election in May next year Labour are the largest party but if you took away the Scottish MPs the Conservatives are the largest party. So you know this is very difficult because you cannot have a government that one government for the UK and one government for England, which is a different party. You can't have the Labour government running the UK and a Conservative government running England, if you like. And so I think Miliband is now saying that he wants to delay a decision about this. He wants to deal with Scotland first and perhaps have a constitutional convention, a people's convention in some point in 2015, perhaps following the Irish model. Ireland had a a convention where they randomly picked members of the public to sit in the convention to actually come up with some solutions for this. And I, I actually think that's a, that would be a more interesting idea going forward and I actually think the public out there might think it's about time we did something where it's not run by the politicians. One thing that's clear from the Scottish referendum and the mobilisation of 86% of the people in Scotland, that's the highest turnout of any election in any area, any referendum, any election, any local election in the United Kingdom since universal suffrage. A real mobilisation of the people and a mobilisation of the people largely against mainstream politicians and against the mainstream parties in Westminster. So that's the big challenge going forward. The focus right now is fixing the constitutional questions, but I think there's a much bigger question hanging over all the parties at Westminster, which is how to fix British politics that is perceived to be broken by large parts of the country. How
0: easy is it to break down issues into English only, British only, you know, how easy is that breakdown going to be in practice if say um, Scottish MPs were excluded from certain things?
1: It's really not easy at all. Um, you, when you think about education, for example, you could say, well, spending inside schools could be decentralised, so the amount of money that gets spent on schools. Well, what about a national curriculum? So, you know, is the curriculum that they're actually teaching in the classroom. That's a national curriculum. So, you know, it's it's much more tricky than, than you think. It's not like... We don't have a, a system of federalism like in Germany where in a written constitution they say these policies issues are the competence of the federal government these policy issues are the competence of the lender the regions in Germany even then they get they have conflicts we haven't even started to think about how we might draw up a set of rules that um, that, set that determine which things are decided at what level of government and so we may be Starting to think about perhaps a written constitution for Britain that actually starts to set these things out in a catalogue. If we do get that, then there'll be a new powers for the courts to try and police that catalogue. But now we're getting ahead of ourselves, but this is perhaps where we're heading in the next two or three years.
0: Now we've just talked about decentralisation, regionalism, Devo Max, Devo Supermax. Did the people who voted yes and no actually get what they wanted? Was this a vote? against independence but for greater devolution, regionalism, is this, how much demand came from the Scottish people and how much of this is a panicked response from the Westminster sort of political leaders?
1: Well we're now starting to see um, in the aftermath of the Scottish independence referendum with opinion polls of the Scottish voters and the people who voted yes, and the people who voted no. So, you know, already, you know, 45% of people in Scotland voted to leave the UK. 1.6 million people living in the UK voted to leave the UK. That's of major constitutional magnitude. Of the no's, two million people voted no. Of those two million who voted no, it's pretty clear that a significant proportion voted no on the expectation that they were voting no because of the pledge that had been made by the major parties. So some, a large chunk would have voted no regardless, but it's clear. And so this is where the argument is. You know, some of the Conservatives are saying, well, the no campaign won by 10%. So actually, Cameron overbid. He could have actually bid less and won it by a narrower margin, and then they wouldn't have had to make such a big commitment to Scotland. Now they've made this commitment to Scotland, it was a mistake. And so there's growing criticism in his party. But And you know, even though, the rhetoric right now is the decision has been made for a generation. I don't necessarily buy that. What we've seen with, for example, in Quebec, where they had two referendums, with other parts of the world where there's pressure for decentralization, a decision is made in a referendum, and then people are waiting to see what happens. So five years from now, if there hasn't been a new settlement for Scotland with new Devo Supermax, I can bet you there's a big chunk of those no-voters who are going to be saying, all right, I want another referendum, and this time I'm going to vote yes. And so that is the sword of Damocles that's hanging over the head of the Westminster elite. That there has been one referendum; it was closer than they liked, than they expected. They didn't expect a year ago, or let alone even three months ago, they didn't expect 45% to be voting yes. 45% is only another. There's only another 200,000 voters in Scotland need to be persuaded to switch from a no to a yes for Scotland to vote for independence. That's a pretty small margin in the great scheme of things.
0: It's great. Thank you very much, Simon, you have thoughts. Here.